Well, good morning, everybody. If we haven't met, my name's Dave. I'm the teaching pastor at our South Hills campus, but I'm so glad to be with you here. Oh, I have a little something for you. So hold on one second. I, I, just, I just brought something. It's the holidays. It's, it's for you. Would you like me to open it? Yes, you do. It's a Mariah box. It's been froze. She's been frozen in there since January, and uh, it's time to finally let her out. Now, some of you are like, "Ah, I don't really care." And to you, I say, A B C D E F G H. I feel like it's the holiday season. It's officially past Thanksgiving, which means it's legal to play Christmas music, right? It's legal to decorate in every state and municipality. It's legal to listen to Mariah. So I say, let's just celebrate it and just go full Mariah. Excellent work, everybody. Give it up for Christmas. There it is. Now, here's the problem with Christmas, though. As you know, sometimes the songs and the, and the cultural accoutrements that surround it can actually dominate our thinking. For example, how many of you, when you think about Christmas, think of one of your favorite Christmas songs? Anybody? Now, how many of you have ever had chestnuts that have been roasted on an open fire? Raise your hands if that's ever... If you've ever even eaten that. Right, right, okay, so like four of you, all right? How many of you have ever ridden in a open sleigh, one horse or otherwise? Have you? Nice. How many of you have ever heard silver bells? How would you know they're silver? What's it matter if they're silver? Why, why can't they be gold or bronze? They, wouldn't they sound the same? Seems like they would. How many of you have ever built a snowman in an open field? Anybody ever ever done that? Have you ever pretended it's a pastor and then asked that snowman to marry you and your significant other? Which is, I checked, not legally binding anywhere. No, right? But the point is, these are the songs that kind of dominate our imagination. And if we're not careful, they'll dominate how we think about Christmas. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But they're incomplete, aren't they? They're incomplete. For example, there's no Jesus in them. And so that's the next thing. How many of you have a favorite Jesus Christmas carol? Does anyone have, have one? What, what, what's one of your favorites? Yep. Little Drummer Boy. Mm. Oh, does that count? Sure, we'll give it, we'll give it. Not sure it's biblical, but it is fun. Anybody else? Uh, another favorite? Yes, in the back. Oh, no, it's a good one. Oh, Holy Night's a great one. But here's the problem with even Christmas songs. In nativity, how many of you have, uh, have a nativity? That, uh, anybody here have a neighborhood nativity? Somebody in their neighborhood puts up a giant nativity? Yeah, it's pre pretty cool. But even with nativities, 
There's a danger in nativities, and I don't mean like dangerous, like they're gonna hurt you. Unless it's a live nativity and you get behind like an angry camel, that could be dangerous. But there's a danger in nativities. Here's why. Because we can focus on the baby, Jesus, and only see him as helpless. And, and even the nativity can distort our image of Christmas. Because Jesus isn't just a helpless baby. Sometimes you'll see nativity scenes and you're like, what's even going on here? This is a nativity scene I went online um, for Amazon because, you know, it is the season. And uh, I checked out some nativity scenes that are for sale or that were kind of, a, this is one, this is a modern nativity scene. What's, what is even going on? I just love the expressions on their faces. <laughs> that angel is thin. It's a very thin angel. This one's also, this is called a hipster Christmas. Uh, it's in nativity. There's Mary and Joseph taking a selfie with the, the, the Christ. The three wise Amazon men. I don't understand the cow. It's organic, I guess. Um, I also like it when people mess with nativity scenes. There was a guy on Reddit I saw. He's like, my mom has had the same nativity scene in, her, in, in the entryway of her home for years, and I added something to it this year, and my mom has still not noticed. And so this is what he did. He added something. See if you can spot it. <laughs> I know we hear about Herod, who is a king, but maybe not an emperor, certainly not an emperor penguin, uh, there's another one, uh, you know Precious Moments, the old Hallmark one? Uh, there was a, a guy who went through there's pre- his mom's Precious Moments uh, nativity scene with a Sharpie, and uh, he edited them here, so he made them all angry. Uh, I think it's, it's sort of funny. So the angry, nativity, <laughs> everyone's disgruntled. Oh, it's fantastic. And then this one, which is, just seems like a hodgepodge, they just threw everything they could find, all the toys, Batman's the angel? I don't remember there being a T-Rex at the nativity. That seems dangerous. But there's a danger also in the nativities because if we, if we just focus on the, the nativity and we just focus on Jesus, sometimes that's all we'll see is baby Jesus. It reminds me of one of my favorite films, and I'm probably alone in this, but that's okay. It's, uh, it's not really a Christmas film, like Die Hard is a Christmas film. This is not a Christmas film. It's called Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, and there's this scene where he's praying. And as he prays, this is what he says. He keeps, he says, dear tiny infant Jesus, dear eight pounds, six ounce newborn infant Jesus in your golden fleece diaper with your little balled up fist. This is what Ricky prays. And his family's like, I don't like that. He grew up to be a man. He's like, I wanna pray to the baby Jesus. You can pray to whatever Jesus you want to. And this is the idea that we can actually, in this Christmas season, actually get stuck. Now, there's nothing wrong with nativities. Obviously, it's, it's incredibly biblical, but it's incomplete because Jesus is not just a baby. He did grow up. And more importantly, the images that populate my mind and probably yours around the Christmas season from the popular imagination, if we're not careful, that will dominate our imaginations and inform the way we view Christmas and even Jesus. And the danger is that we will, all we will see this Christmas season is an infant. But there's so much more to Jesus. C.S. Lewis put it famously like this in The Last Battle in the Chronicles of Narnia. 
series. He said this, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. And that's what this season is. So this morning, in the time allotted, I'm gonna go through three images that the biblical authors give us to help us see Jesus the Messiah very clearly. These are three images not from Michael Buble, as great as Michael Buble is, but three images from the biblical authors to help us see Jesus very clearly. And it's my hope and my prayer that after this that we'll see him a little bit more clearly. And more importantly, these three images are also an invitation from the biblical authors to see and receive from God what he is and who he is and see the Messiah for who he is, what he is, and what he offers. And this might be actually far more than you could ever need because here's the thing, that baby in the nativity doesn't seem like it can do anything, especially to those of you in the room who are going through some tough times or facing difficult things. What can a baby do? And that's where the biblical story comes in. These images can help inform us and show us what this baby's about and what this Messiah is about. So three biblical images of the Messiah. The first, let's go through them. The first one, just gonna dive right into it. A strong tower, a strong tower. This image of the Messiah being a tower or a fortified tower is found multiple times in the Old Testament in the prophecies and in the words about the Messiah. For example, Proverbs 18 says this, the name of the Lord is a fortified tower the righteous run to it and are safe. Psalm 61 puts it this way. From the ends of the earth, I call to you. I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. And then Psalm 18 writes, David writes, the Lord is my rock, my fortress, that's the same, the strong tower, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Again and again, this imagery of God as a tower, a strong fortified tower is used. Now why? Well, towers in the ancient world were incredibly important. They were critically important to the well-being of the people in the ancient world. The strength and stability of a tower provided protection from enemies and more importantly, also high ground over any potential wars or conflicts. Towers kept people safe and secure from enemies. Then without towers, the people would surely be lost. And so they run to them. People run to them and they're fortified. Now how can the name of the Lord, how can God be a strong tower? How can the Messiah in all that he comes and all that he is be a strong tower. Well, in a, in, a, in a basic way, Jesus provides us, among other things, safety and refuge from the biggest of foes, death and sin, and the powers of sin and death, which wreak havoc on every human life. And Jesus is a refuge from that. He defeated the powers of sin and darkness. And in him, all who call on his name are safe. All who call on his name are safe. This is an extreme example I understand. But I started thinking, what's the most extreme example I have 
of what it means for God to be a strong tower, to be a refuge in times of trouble. So I went to the most extreme example that I've experienced this past year, because if it works in the most extreme example, it might work in my life in a less extreme example. I don't think I've shared this, but I wanna introduce to you one of my favorite all-time students. I was a youth pastor for years. I was a high school English teacher for years. This is one of my favorite students ever. His name is Hector. Hector had a passion for life like I've never seen before. Hector was excited about everything. You could tell Hector, hey, we're gonna go to Chipotle. He would be excited out of his mind. Oh my gosh, I love Chipotle. You love Chipotle? Love, like that's usually a word reserved. He loved everything. And here's the thing about Hector. He had a passion and a zest for life. And every time he came into our youth group, man, there was just an energy that just flowed out. But Hector, was it, he was a junior, and so he's popular at school, and he started hearing about all these things about Jesus, and he realized, wait a second, I've kind of got one foot in this school world where I'm popular and these things are going on, and I've got this other foot in this church Jesus world. And he was straddling a barbed wire fence, and that's not comfortable for anyone. And he kind of realized, I, I have to make a decision here. Which, which way is my direction of my life gonna go? So we invited him to a winter camp at Hume Lake. And the speaker's talking about Jesus. And the speaker's talking about what it means to follow Jesus in a very clear way. And just God's spirit is working on Hector. I can, he's sitting right next, I, want, I wanted to sit right next to him. First of all, I wanna keep an eye on him. Second of all, I had the sense that maybe God might do something. That Hector was talking all these things about what it meant to follow Jesus, that he might actually, he might actually change. Something might happen. And as I sat next to Hector, he was like, his leg was like vibrating. He like couldn't sit in his chair. Like God was really working on him. And the speaker on stage kept making this call. Hey, Jesus isn't just a thing you sprinkle onto your life like salt. It's not something you add to your life. It's the essence of your life. You give him control, you follow him. He's king, he's Lord, he's savior. And then he made an invitation and I wondered what was going on inside of Hector. And he was wearing this, he loved the Raiders. He had this Raiders hat. This is before they betrayed the whole city and left. Anyway. <laughs> he had this Raiders hat. And I remember the speaker just kept asking him, you know, asking the, the students, hey, if this is you, if you, want, if you want this, if you want to say to Jesus, I'm yours, then just stand up. And, and Hector just took off his hat and he threw it down and he said, in choice word, he said, screw it. And he just stood up. I remember thinking, I just watched a human being go from death to life, right next to me, in a moment. From death to life, right in that second. Hector grew, he went with us on multiple mission trips. This is him in the back of a pickup truck. I mean, he looks like a puppy. He's just excited. He was no good at construction at all. <laughs> and it didn't matter because he was with me and I'm not either. <laughs> but he served. And then a couple weeks later, we had a beach baptism. And Hector looked at me and said, I, I got I to get baptized. Jesus is mine. I got to get baptized. And he's terrified of water. He's terrified of water. So I took my strongest leader, my strongest, most buff leader, 
And I also invited Christian here and myself. We went out. That was a joke. All right, no? And the, it was super, super, super windy and wavy. I mean, the waves, it was crazy waves to the point where I'm like, we're not even gonna baptize this guy. The waves are gonna baptize him, right? So we go out there and we're out there with him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we dunked Hector and he came out of the water and he was glowing. Hector found that Jesus was a strong tower. He could save him from the powers of sin and death. But what Hector didn't know was that that promise was not just for the hereafter. A couple years later, I got a call from one of my buddies who was a youth leader with me and said, you know, Hector, Hector got diagnosed with a rare form of cancer. It's bad. He was a college student at San Jose State. It's just not fair. And it's bad, Dave, it's bad. For three years, he fought. He had his girlfriend, Paulina, and he thought, well, this is it. This is the end of our relationship. But Paulina's like, no, it's not. He's like, I've been given a death sentence, basically. There's no telling how long I'm gonna live. She goes, well, then you're gonna live every minute of your life with me. And they got married. And for three and a half years, they fought. They fought this terrible disease of cancer. And cancer is like a grenade. It just has shrapnel all inside you sometimes. And sometimes you just can't fight it. But Hector fought, because Hector loved life. In one of his last posts, he posted this. Picture of him fighting with his wife, sleeping next to him. Hector died this year, this summer. I had to speak at his funeral, I say had to. It was very tough. It's not right for a 26-year-old to die. It just isn't right. But this is the program that they passed out to everyone. Isaiah 41 was written on it. Don't fear. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. You know what kind of imagery this is? This is strong tower imagery. And as Hector faced a foe that would take his life, he had no fear because this foe could not touch him because death cannot touch him because he is Jesus's and Jesus beat death. Some of you are facing very difficult things, impossible things, maybe something like cancer This isn't academic. The nativity is not a baby, merely a baby. It's a baby who grew up and beat death. And some of you are in desperate need of a strong tower. Let me tell you, Jesus is the only strong tower in this universe. Everything else will fail. But Jesus will not. This Messiah beat death. There is not a stronger tower in the universe. And all who run to him and call on his name are safe. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe that's what you need. 
Jesus is saying, run to me. The second image the biblical authors give us is that the Messiah will be like a stream in the desert. A stream in the desert. Now, the ancient Israelites were a desert-dwelling people. If there was no water, there was no life. Some of you know a lot about what it means and what it feels like to be in a desert. Some of you are in the desert right now. And imagine what a stream might feel like. I wanna talk for a second about burnout, which is a little bit like what a desert feels like. Burnout, according to the World Health Organization, is characterized by exhaustion, mental distancing, and cynicism. Can anyone relate to this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Some of you shaking your heads because you know, and not just know, but like know what it feels like to feel yourself burning out. Exhaustion, mental distancing. I can't even, in the words of my children, I can't even. And then worst of all, cynicism. We sang that song this morning, you keep hope alive. Cynicism says, nah, not really. Cynicism destroys, is corrosive to the human soul. 36% of American adults reported cognitive weariness in this past year. 32% of American adults reported emotional exhaustion this past year. And 44% of American adults reported physical fatigue. I wonder what percentage said, yep, all of them. This is your soul, weary. And the problem with a weary soul is sometimes if you keep pushing through, your soul will say, stop. Pay attention to me or else. And things begin to break down. Do you know this? Have you felt this? In the Bible, streams of water in the desert is a metaphor for abundant life that is possible flowing from God himself, making flourishing possible, even happen in the midst of even incredibly difficult circumstances. Does that sound like something maybe you need right now? Isaiah 43, the prophet Isaiah put it this way. This is God speaking. He says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. Psalm 1, the opening of the Psalms, has this beautiful picture of what life with God is like. It says, blessed is the one who does not walk and step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers or scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever they do prospers. Now here's why this is important. It yields fruit in season, but then out of season in the drought, its leaf does not wither. Why? Because it has access to water even in the drought. It is flourishing. This idea of a stream or God providing a stream into the wilderness is all over the place. It starts off in the very opening pages of, the God, of, of, of Genesis. 
where God has this Eden, this, this beautiful place that he's created, and these rivers flow out of it to the rest of the world. But even more importantly, when those rivers seem to dry up, there's this prophet named Ezekiel who gives an image of what life without the streams of water is like. And he has this image of Israel being like a, a land that is dry and full of dry bones. It's a desert. And Ezekiel has this vision. This is a beautiful vision. It's, it, it has this idea of there's a temple and out of the temple begins a stream. So this is from God. And the stream turns into a river and flows out into Israel. And this is the vision that Ezekiel had. I saw a great number of trees on each side of this river. He, that's God, said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down to the Ar Arabah, where it enters the Dead Sea. When it empties into the sea, the salty water there becomes fresh, and swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. There will be large numbers of fish because this water flows there and makes salt water fresh, so where the river flows, everything will live Fishermen will stand along the shore from En Gedi to En Eglium, and there will be places for spreading nets. The fish will be of many kinds, like the fish of the Mediterranean Sea, but the swamps and the marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt, but fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will the fruit fail. Do you see where that's from? Do you see the reference back to Psalm 1? Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary, the temple flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Do you see the lushness in the desert of this river? It can even turn the Dead Sea into fresh water. This is the image of Ezekiel, what God will do in the last days. This is, this is Messiah language. God will make rivers flow in the desert. And then, of course, we see in John 4 this moment where Jesus walks up to a well and he says to the woman, do you want a drink? She's like, that's why I'm at a well. And he's like, I've got water. And she's like, the well has water. And he's like, no, my water is different. Everyone who drinks this water will never be thirsty. Everyone who drinks this water in the well will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then later on in John 7, Jesus says this, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, has streams of living water that will flow from within him. Jesus actually gives an image, and this is kind of funny, of him as like a giant waterfall. And water, nope, before that, the other one, the giant waterfall, and unlike TLC, you should chase this because this waterfall will provide you with eternal life, and you will never be thirsty again. Jesus is like a waterfall of himself. And then, of course, the apostle John, as he's writing this story, shows us another moment about how this is possible. There's a moment with the crucifixion. And do you remember this? The Roman centurion pierces Jesus' side. And what comes out? Blood, but also what? Water. Water. In his crucifixion, Jesus is not only providing for eternal life, but giving us streams of water of life. And whoever drinks of this, the whole world. 
Do you need streams of water in your desert right now? Are you in a desert right now? Are you weary? Are you exhausted? Are you mentally distancing? Has cynicism crept in more than you'd like to admit? Is hope elusive? Do you feel beaten down? Come to the stream of living water. Be refreshed. Be refreshed. There's this moment in Psalm 1 that says, you saw it, we read it before, like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, trees can't control where they're planted, but we can. We can plant ourselves by the stream of living water. Maybe you need to do that. Maybe you need water more than you know. Jesus is saying there is no other stream. You can look for it on the stream. Finally, the final image is, and this is probably the most familiar, prophet Isaiah famously said that Jesus, the Messiah, will be a light in the darkness. Isaiah 9 says this, and we read this every Christmas, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. In the Bible, darkness is spoken of more than 200 times. It's one of the Bible's commanding metaphors for life without God, for sin, for the brokenness of the human condition. And it's multifaceted, if we're honest, because darkness is all over the place. First of all, there's darkness out there. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. The world is a dark place. There's darkness and war and conflict and the awfulness of humans toward one another and greed, manipulation, even conflicts. Some of you had your family over this Thanksgiving and you got to see darkness up close and personal. And we laugh, but sometimes it's not funny, is it? To stare at your loved ones, trapped in darkness, addictions and depression, cynicism. I have a relative who just balls his fist up at God. He's just so angry. I just wish he could see Jesus for who he is. Jesus isn't mad at the madness of my relative. But Jesus isn't the cause of his suffering. I wish he could see it. There's darkness out there. Sin has this effect. There's the sin that is done to us and sin that other people do to other people, the sin that we can see. There's darkness out there. But there's also, if we're honest, darkness in here, isn't there? We're not who we want to be. We're a muddled mess of bad motivations. We don't make the right decision. We're selfish and inward. God comes, the Messiah comes to confront the darkness. Jesus finds darkness in the brokenness of the woman at the well that John just wrote about, and the lame man at the pool, the heart hard-heartedness of the religious leaders, 
the spiritual darkness of the masses, the unwanted invasion of death into the life of one of his closest friends, the betrayal of Judas, the chanting of the crowds at his crucifixion, the cruelty of the Roman guards. There is darkness all over John's gospel, all over. And yet Jesus says in John 8, 12, when Jesus spoke to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. <coughs> Our friend John Ortberg, who spoke here a number of weeks ago, put it this way. I love this quote. He said, God sees this darkness. He sees our world. He sees our souls. He doesn't send a warning. He doesn't send a rebuke. He doesn't send punishment. He doesn't send an idea. He doesn't send a religion. He sends this man who embodies all that the human race was intended to be and all the gracious love that God has for us. He sends a person he sends his son, he sends Jesus. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will never walk in darkness. Maybe you know about the darkness out there. And when you pray, that is what you most often pray about. For the darkness in those that you love, that you see, or in a conflict, or in a situation. Or maybe you have eyes to see that there's also darkness in here and that you are not somehow what you were meant to be. Maybe there's something you desperately wanted to get rid of and yet you still feel like you're holding on to it and you need God's help. Here's the good news about light. The brighter the light, the less darkness can be around it. And when that light flicks on, darkness scatters. One of my favorite Christmas songs is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And there's this line in it that says, and death's dark shadows put to flight. What happens when the dark shadows of sin and death encounter the light of the light of the world? They cannot exist because light destroys darkness. Maybe you need that. Again, C.S. Lewis, once in our world, a stable had something in it that was bigger than our whole world. So we're gonna invite you as our worship team comes up to examine this Christmas and to see with clarity this Christ. And I don't know which one you need. Maybe you need a tower or the stream or the light. I don't know which one you might need. But this baby is not just a baby. He's all of these things. He has a strong tower against the enemies of life, including sin and death, our biggest enemies. He's a stream in the desert for those who are weary and exhausted and desperately need. He's a light in the darkness for those who see the darkness up close, either out there or in here. And he makes the darkness scatter because he's the light of the world. As we prepare for communion, why don't we just take a moment and just pray? And maybe that's you. Maybe you need one of these things. And just do business with God and ask him and say, I need you right now. I need you to rescue me and be my strong tower. I'm exhausted and my soul is parched. I need your stream in the desert of my life.
Darkness is dominating my life, my thoughts, my world. Light of the world, would you come and be with me and scatter the shadows? Let's pray. Lord, I pray for this group of beloved children, your sons and daughters. Some come heavy this season and they need you, Jesus. They need you, Messiah, strong tower, stream in the desert, light of the world. Hear our prayers. See us. We cling to your promises. We cling to your identity. It's in your name we pray. Amen. And amen. As we enter into this Christmas season, there is so much fun and joy. And there's so much in our culture that is beautiful and delightful. But let's not lose sight of the Messiah who was all these things. We're gonna take communion now. So if you'll join me as we prepare to take this as a reminder of who this baby is. This baby would grow to give his life on a cross. And on the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he took and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. As often as you are together, take and eat and do so in remembrance of me. We take and do so in remembrance of Jesus who gave his body for us. And in the same way, he took the cup, the wine, and he said, this is my blood, the new covenant that runs in my blood. My blood, which is shed for you, as often as you are together, take and drink and do so in remembrance of me. So let's take and drink and do so in remembrance of Jesus in his shed blood for us. Jesus, thank you for all that you are this Christmas. Help us see you with clarity. Thank you for the reality of your identity and the reality of what you offer to us. We worship you, and we want to see you clearly this Christmas. It's in your name we pray, amen and amen. Will you stand with me?
as we worship the strong tower, the stream in the darkness, and the light of the world. 